I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. Welcome back. You made it. You're into episode three of season two. And I have to congratulate you on feeling bold and feeling brave about diving into all the things that this season is going to have because it has just a whole bag of stuff. Um, When Ryan and I talk about a bag of craziness, we talk about it being a bag of snakes or a bag of alligators, (laughs) baby alligators to be specific. And this season feels like a bag of baby alligators. There's just so much going on in it and it feels a little chaotic in my head. And so what I'm doing, what I'm focusing on is making it not feel like a bag of baby alligators to you guys. So let me know if it feels like a bag of baby alligators to you, okay? All right. So in the last episode, we talked about the historical context of the Bible and how it's kind of difficult to keep in mind that there is a historical context to the Bible because we're used to talking about the Bible being a world of its own. And we apply the rules of that world to itself, but don't really look at the outside world of that. And the world of academical, ac- academical, academic biblical research is slowly getting back to that point where they're taking into consideration the world of the Bible, the historical and cultural context, and caring about what influenced ancient Israel and what did they have to deal with that wasn't within their own religion. You know, even if you're not a part of a religion, you still have to deal with the cultural impacts of that religion. You know what I mean? When I do yoga videos at home on YouTube, I'm thinking about what kind of mantras and what kind of like they give like little encouragements at the beginning and end of the video. I'm thinking about my boys and them hearing that and thinking, how does that sound to them? What does that mean to them? I know that I'm doing yoga and that's out of a Hindu tradition, but they don't know that. What does that mean to them? So even though I'm not Hindu, I'm dealing with the impact of Hindu culture in my own home. Ancient Israel was not exempt from that simply because they had their own culture and history and religion. They still dealt with the culture and history and religion of the countries around them, the nations, the tribal systems, all around them. So one of the things that we're going to do today is look at one tradition, one way of doing things, and how it was done, and how that affects our reading of the Bible, okay? Because all of these cultural traditions, they mean something, they're important, and they affected daily life of people that we read about in the Bible. I'm going to warn you that this episode might have a lot of scuffling around because I'm cold, so I have a blanket over my lap, and then I have a big fat ESV study Bible on my lap, and then I have my tablet on top of that, and I'm going to be flipping around in my Bible, so you might hear some, (laughs) sorry about all the background noise, basically, if there is any. So what we're going to talk about today is something that I used to teach as a Bible study to talk about how you can get weird with the Bible. The subject we're talking about today is the hem of the garment. And I don't know what comes to mind to you when we talk about the hem of the garment. 
But to me, a whole bunch of things come to mind, and hopefully we'll cover a lot of those things. Uh, But maybe see if you can attach more things to this, more hem of the garment references that I didn't mention or think about, and see if it makes sense within the context that I'm going to talk about it. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to first talk to you about Matthew 14, 35, and 36. And I'm going to read it. There's going to be a little chunks that I'm going to read because we really need the context and we really need to know specifically what we're talking about. So here it is, Matthew 14, 35, and 36. This is talking about Jesus and the heading of this paragraph in my, well, Ryan's ESV Bible is Jesus heals the sick in Gennesaret. So I'm just going to read that little section, 34, 35, and 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So this is one of those things that has led people off onto wild goose chases thinking about holy objects and secret stuff and it made it makes me think about the shroud of turin and paul's sweaty handkerchiefs that were used to heal people like people were stealing paul's handkerchiefs and using them to try and heal themselves um the hem of jesus garment people would touch it and they would be healed So this one isn't a made-up one, like hopefully this will happen and they're trying to make magic with it or anything like that. This was a legitimate way that people were actually being made well, were being healed just by touching the hem of Jesus' garment. So we're going to talk about this the whole episode. Why were they trying to touch it? Why was that a thing? And why were they getting healed? what what was going on what's going on behind the scenes that we don't understand simply because we don't have the cultural context right so that's what we're going to do so first of all we know what this does not mean we know that holiness or purity or just like cleanliness like even physical cleanliness of healing the body isn't transferable we know that that's not what's going on, that Jesus made his clothes holy. And so people that touched his holy clothes were made holy and therefore it healed them or something like that. We know that's not true because there's an obscure little verse back in Haggai. Haggai 2.12 talks about this and talks about the fact that holiness isn't transferable. We still have the problem of what is going on, but it's not something transferring itself it's not something physically moving from jesus clothes to somebody else but we do have a lot of other places in the bible that talk about the hem of the garment and now we're going to go to each of those spots and talk about what's going on there what do we know about what's happening and how does it help us to understand what is happening with those people that are getting healed So the next place we're going to go is Ruth. Now, if you know the story of Ruth, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but she's a Moabite. Her husband was Israelite. So it's the family of Orpah, right? 
Orpah's family goes to Moab during a famine. And it's her, her husband, and two sons. And the two sons, they apparently stayed long enough there that they're like, well, we better get married. So they married two Moabite women. And then all the men in the family died. The father and the two sons. And so it's just Naomi, the mother-in-law. Did I say Orpah before? Naomi, sorry. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth is now a widow and her mother-in-law wants to go back to Israel. And so she goes with her and she's an incredibly loyal lady, very hardworking, very kind, really wants to take care of her mother-in-law now that her mother-in-law is older, doesn't have any um, income earners with her. So they go back to Israel and Ruth ends up working for Boaz and Naomi gets really excited about this saying, hey, this guy is actually a close relative of mine. In our law, in our customs, you can actually ask this guy to marry you. And he has a certain amount of duty to do that. He can refuse, but somebody needs to marry you. And if this guy is being kind to you, you have a good chance of this. Go do it. Go propose to this guy. Go ask for sanctuary. We don't have Naomi explicitly explaining to Ruth what to do. She says, I'll tell you what to do, but she doesn't explain all the steps. We just end up with the story of Ruth down at the threshing floor where they basically had a harvest party celebrating all this grain coming in. And here's the story. So this is Ruth 3, 6. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, that's Ruth again, she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Yeah, I'd be startled too. He said, but he is the guy that chose to sleep at the threshing floor, so... Uh, You're making weird decisions to begin with, Boaz. Anyway, he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Let me read that one part again. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay? Now, if you don't know, wings is kind of a double entendre in that verse, because she is making a reference to kind of the wings of the Almighty, kind of like how God uh, references himself as being like an eagle or a mother hen who covers her young with his wings. It's a protective idea. We have the interpretation of what she is saying there about the wings of the Almighty in the previous chapter. In chapter two of Ruth, Boaz compliments her and says, you have done well, that you have come to the wings of the Almighty for refuge, for protection. And so she is asking him for that same kind of protection. She's using his own words to ask for something different, right? She's not asking just for his protection. She's asking for marriage. And in marriage, she would receive that protection. But she not only asks for it, she demonstrates it with the hem of his robe. So in that, in that passage, it says that she uses the hem of his robe 
to spread it over herself, kind of like a blanket. She lies down beside him, uncovers his feet, and puts the blanket over herself a little bit. But it's not a blanket. She's using it as a blanket. It's the hem of his robe. Now, whatever words you have in your Bible for hem of the robe, hem of the garment, in King James, it's the skirt of his garment. In Hebrew, it's all the same word. It's the word wing. So all through the scripture, when they're talking about the hem of the robe, they're talking about the wing of the robe. It just means the edge that can kind of flutter out in the breeze if you're walking. I kind of get an Instagram picture in my head with these girls that get on these like fancy ball dresses and then go prancing up to some spectacular scene. So that fluttering motion of their dress or their scarf or somebody's cape, think of it fluttering in the breeze. That's where they probably got the idea to call the hem of the robe the wings. So Ruth is not only asking for marriage by asking for protection under his wing. She also demonstrated it by going under his <laughs> wing, his not so literal wing, like his arm or something, but under his robe. So we need more context than that, though, to understand that, because I don't, there's no words in the Bible that a woman proposes to a man by tucking herself under the hem of his robe, right? But we do have more context on the symbolism of the hem of the garment. And that's where we're going to go next. We are told in Numbers 15, 37, what the hem was all about. Because this was a part of the commands of God for how people were supposed to dress. Okay, so this is Numbers 13, sorry, Numbers 15, 37. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So it ends a little explicitly. (laughs) Um, But the point is that God told the people of Israel, and I think it was just the men, um, but it, it it doesn't mention that actually in this verse. It says, speak to the people of Israel. So maybe women had this too. But in modern Israel, you can see the Orthodox men still have tassels, especially on their prayer shawls, which has a blue stripe going through it. This is out of numbers that they're doing this. They're still obeying this command. But you can see that the command has a purpose. It says put tassels and put blue in it because it's going to remind you to obey me. It's going to remind you to submit and to follow me instead of doing whatever you want. It's a symbol of holiness and submission and loyalty so now think about that with Ruth she's using a picture of submission loyalty and purity in connection with a marriage proposal it adds context for sure so that's what the Bible can add to um, understanding these different passages and what the hem of the garment was all about so I had heard this stuff mentioned in church before, but I don't think I ever made a big connection to the story about Jesus and the 
hem of his garment being touched. And it wasn't until I visited a museum in Israel that this really stood out to me as being a really cool fact that we need to know to understand the Bible. So a week before Ryan and I moved out of Israel, we'd been living there for a year, we went to Jerusalem and we had been trying to visit the Temple Mount for <laughs> practically the entire time that we were living in Israel, but they would have quotas, like if it got too crowded, they would stop letting people in, or on holidays and holy days, it was more difficult to go, or you weren't allowed unless you were Muslim. So there was just different problems, and if there was unrest of some sort, you definitely couldn't go up there. So we had tried maybe four or five times Basically, every time we went to Jerusalem, we tried to go on the Temple Mount because we figured we should go there um, before we left. And a week before we moved back to the States, we finally got on, onto the Temple Mount. And we, we were up there, it's probably like an hour or so, and there was a lot of police presence. Sorry, this is a side note. This is a side story. It's connected, but only a little bit. It, it was a very tense day. We don't really remember exactly what was going on, but it was one of those days that it was getting tense up there and police were standing by in case there was a riot. And at one point, and this is another fact, Jerusalem gets snow very rarely, but it gets snow. And we went up the day after it had snowed. So there were little snow banks and piles of slightly mushy snow here and there. And we, when we went up on the Temple Mount, off on the far side of where we were, there looked like to be a snowball fight going on. And we thought, oh, how fun. This is interesting. And like, you know, this is a really cool story. Have a watch a snowball fight up on the Temple Mount on the day that we were there. And we thought, holly jolly, this is good. <laughs> no, um, people were throwing snowballs at the police up there and trying to be threatening and intimidating and make them go away in a way that they couldn't technically get in trouble for because it's just snowballs. Later, we found out there were rocks in the snowballs. So it was not at all holly jolly. It was not at all a friendly day. And we probably should have left or stayed close to the gate where we could leave, where there was also police standing by. But instead, we're oblivious tourists, and we wander around, and we take pictures, <laughs> and we look really stupid. And finally, this group of men just starts following us around and tells us, you got to get out of here, like leave now. And they're very threatening. It was not at all a happy experience. I think we have a little PTSD from it, because finally, we started getting pelted with snowballs, and that was when we are like, okay, we should probably leave. And there were other tourists around, and that's part of why we thought it was okay. <laughs> no, well, it was, it was fine. Everybody's fine. But anyway, that was the same day that we then later, to kind of uh, come down from that tense time, we went to the Bible Lands Museum, which was also in Jerusalem, still is there. And it was just the oddest experience to go from this very tense very unsettled experience where we felt very threatened and it was just not a good experience. And then we went over to this museum and it was quiet and calm and we were the only people in there. There's like three other families walking around and we basically had the museum to ourselves and we could just spend 
any old time that we wanted there. And this museum was really cool. It had all sorts of stuff from ancient Israel, including little statues of when they talk about household gods. Do you remember the story of Rachel being in her tent and she had stolen her father's household gods and she was sitting on them? They had household gods. And they're just these cute little statues. And you can imagine them being like trinkety and cute. And it didn't feel like you're being idolatrous, but you're totally worshiping idols. So they had things like that. It was just a really cool museum to walk into. Lots of ancient art, um, mosaics, and I love mosaics. So one of the things that they had, and you can actually look this up online if you want. uh, It's called the Bible Lands Museum. If you can, you can download an app that shows you different exhibits and you can look up their permanent collection. I think it's number 16, 17, 18, or 19. There's an exhibit about the hem of the garment. And when we were there, I thought it was so interesting. I took a picture and I looked it up again to make sure that all my facts were still correct for this podcast episode. And I read the description for the exhibit. I took a picture of that and read it all again. I'm like, okay, great. Good to know. And it's a part of their permanent collection. So you can still read about it. And they had some interesting facts about the hem of the garment. There was lots of symbolic acts that you could do with the hem of the garment. And there's a quote from the Bible Lands Museum. Holding the hem of a garment was a symbol of attachment to a king or a god. Let me read that again. Holding the hem, like we see with Jesus and the people touching the hem, but specifically holding the hem of a garment was a symbol of attachment to a king or a god. Interesting, right? So now think back to people touching the hem of Jesus' garment and being healed. Just keep that in mind. We'll talk about that again later. But there's more. There's more symbolic acts. It was also a means of personal identification. You could give your fringe in pledge or press it into wax like a ring. So you think about like medieval, like Robin Hood or a movie like that where they seal things with a ring. They pour wax onto a letter, seal it with a ring and send it off. And that way, you know, it was from the person that had that ring. So you could also do that with a fringe. And if you download that app from the Bible Lands Museum, you can see a picture of a fringe. And it's not just like a fancy carpet or a fancy curtain or something that has tassels hanging from it. It was knotted in certain ways and braided in certain ways, and different people had different patterns in their fringes. So that when you saw a certain pattern to the thread or the threads, in a fringe, you would be able to recognize, ah, oh, yeah, that's my that's my dad's fringe. I know my dad's fringe. I've seen that growing up. You know, I know exactly what that looks like. So fringe, tassels, hem of the garment, all of these things, it's like that Bible project term of hyperlinking. If you mention the hem of the garment, you're mentioning a whole bag, <laughs> not a bag of baby alligators, but a bag of connotations and different little rites or traditions or symbolic acts that you could do with the fringe or the hem or the tassels. 
So another reference that I'm not going to drag us to is when Judah, you remember the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis, where Judah sees a woman by the side of the road dressed like a prostitute, and he doesn't have any money with him, and he says, I'll leave my staff. It's three things. I don't remember the third thing, but my staff and my fringe in pledge, meaning I'll pay you later. Here's my credit card or my my driver's license for you to hold on to and you know I'm going to come back for that. <laughs> I want that stuff back. He gave her his fringe, which was probably just like a tassel that he kept in his bag or tied to his robe or something that he could give to people if he needed to as a pledge of payment. So this is Judah's way of saying, this is my tassel. You know it's mine. You can sue me later in court if I don't bring you money. And he later brought her a goat as payment. And she used his tassel to claim paternity for her baby. So there's just another example. So the next one that we're going to read, though, is from 1 Samuel 24. It's from the very beginning of the chapter. And this is when Saul is chasing David around the wilderness. And he's trying to kill David because he knows that David was anointed to be the next king. And Saul's feeling crazy and very jealous, and he's just doing whatever the heck comes into his brain to do because he's the king, and according to him, it's going to stay that way, okay? So here's the story in that situation. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. All right. So when you read that without knowing the context of the hem of the garment, I think typically how we read that is that David's back in this cave. He could have easily come up behind Saul and slit his throat or stabbed him in the back, or whatever the thing was, because he literally had his pants down, right? The image is that if David cut off the corner of his robe, it's showing, I could have killed you. And that's as far as we usually go with that. Now, put that into context with the hem of the robe. What else could that mean? Now that we know what the hem of the robe is supposed to indicate or symbolize and what symbolic acts you could do with it. We can go back to that uh, Bible Lands Museum, what it said, holding the hem of a garment was a symbol of attachment to a king or a god. So if holding it was an attachment of yourself, giving your loyalty to that person or god, what would cutting it off be? It would probably be a symbol of cutting yourself off from attachment, from taking your loyalty away, or maybe even saying you have no authority, or you don't deserve my loyalty, or I am not obeying you, or something like that. 
So there's a lot of different options there that generally mean the same thing, but are basically not life-threatening to Saul. They're authority-threatening to Saul. They're saying, I am no longer following you. You are not my king. You're nothing to me. Those are just some options. And then it makes much more sense why David felt bad about it. He realized that throwing off Saul's authority was not his choice. It was God's choice. And so he wanted to wait for God to fulfill that promise of removing Saul's authority, not David taking Saul's authority. So it makes it pretty interesting to add in that extra information. All right, last reference. This is the last spot that we're going to run around in the Bible to. I don't do this very often, so apparently when I do it, I just pack it all into one episode. All right, this is Matthew 9, 18 through 22. And this is another instance of another person touching the hem of Jesus' robe. Okay, so here we go. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So what we can conclude about that woman is that her faith was in who he was and Jesus approving of that, right? Her faith was in that he was God. She was attaching herself, remember that phrase from the Bible Lands Museum, she was attaching herself to a God or a king by holding his garment. And I'm sure she knew she was in a crowd. She knew she couldn't hold on to his garment. But just to touch it would be enough for her to submit him, herself to him. To say, I am devoting my loyalty to you. And even if you want to think of him as a God or a king, both are true, right? King of kings and Lord of lords. God God of heaven and earth, it it doesn't matter how you want to interpret that phrase. She was submitting herself to him. She was declaring her loyalty to him and was saying, I will obey you. That's the best faith that we can have in Jesus. But it doesn't make really good sense until we know what the hem of the garment was really all about. So, This is a really good example. The hem of the garment is a really good example of something that we see all through the Bible. I just named what? Matthew, Ruth, Numbers, and Samuel. Four different books where we have mentions of the hem of the garment. And it's just a concept that's all through the Bible that we needed cultural context to really understand it. And without that cultural context, it's easy to come up with superstition or mysticism, or secret knowledge that if we get something, or buy something, or be close to something, or have a certain ritual, that we will be better off, or know more than other people, or have greater power than other people, when that's not what it's about at all. It was about a symbolic act to show your submission and loyalty to a higher power. (laughs) I think it's so cool 
because there's nothing about that that contradicts the rest of the Bible. It affirms the rest of the Bible. Jesus and the Old Testament prophets and Moses and Daniel and just, you know, anybody that you could talk to from the Bible, if you talk to them about submission and loyalty and obedience and remembering to obey God rather than running after your own desires, they would all say, yes, that's exactly, (laughs) that's the right stuff. Good for you. You're on the right track. We didn't get off track with superstition and mysticism and things like that. And it's really easy to do that with the Bible because there's lots of mysterious things in there because we don't have the same context and culture, all right? So I really want to encourage you that if there's weird stuff in the Bible, don't get weird with it. Bring it up. Ask questions. Try to figure it out. Remember that the Bible has a different historical and cultural context. Even linguistic context makes a big difference. So what do we get out of it? Don't get weird with the Bible. Submit to God in faith and obedience. And having faith in submission is true submission. All right? So we're going to stop there. I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you thought this was as cool as I think it is. And remember, if you want to look that stuff up on the Bible Lands Museum website or on their app, they have an app. It is in their permanent collection. And I don't remember the exact number, but I think within their permanent collection, it's 16, 17, or 18, somewhere in there. And I think it's mentioned by being a tassel or hem of the garment. So you can check it out yourself. I have the picture also of the information that was in the physical building. They have a different picture of a tassel on the app, so you can see some different pictures. But if you want to see the picture that I have with the information that I have, I can text it to you or email it to you. So yeah, have fun. Enjoy studying the Bible, guys. I do. (laughs) And I hope you do too. All right. Have a good one. Bye.